When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I am the least anti-Semitic person that you've ever seen in your entire life. Number two, racism. The least racist person. In fact, we did very well relative to other people running as a Republican. Quiet, quiet, quiet. See, he lied about he was going to get up and ask a very straight, simple question. So, you know, it's welcome to the world of the media. Tomorrow they will say... Donald Trump rants and raves at the press. I'm not ranting and raving. I'm just telling you, you know, you're dishonest people. And that you call us fake news and, 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 and put us down like children. President Trump, if you're watching, you're the president. You legitimately won the presidency. Now get to work and stop whining about it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the man who is the least anti-Semitic person you have ever seen in your entire life. That's Donald Trump. Today we're talking to John Cassidy. He's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1995, and he also writes a column about politics, economics, and more for NewYorker.com. Following yesterday's astounding, jaw-dropping press conference, John Cassidy wrote a column called Donald Trump's Alternative Reality Press Conference, What he brings up is not just how WTF the whole thing was, but also how effective it might have been in distracting reporters and audiences at home from the bigger issue that Donald Trump has at hand, namely his campaign and his administration's connections to Russia. So we're going to talk about the overt madness of the press conference, but also the covert purpose of the press conference with John Cassidy. But first, here are the tweets. Stock market hits new high with longest winning streak in decades. Great level of confidence and optimism even before tax plan rollout. Leaking and even illegal classified leaking has been a big problem in Washington for years. Failing New York Times and others must apologize. The spotlight has finally been put on low-life leakers. They will be caught. The Democrats had to come up with a story as why they lost the election and so badly three Hundred and six. So they made up a story. Russia, fake news. Despite the long delays by the Democrats in finally approving Dr. Tom Price, the repeal and replacement of Obamacare is moving fast. Thank you for all of the nice statements on the press conference yesterday. Rush Limbaugh said one of greatest ever. Fake media, not happy.
So joining me on the line is John Cassidy, staff writer for The New Yorker, who's written a terrific column on NewYorker.com about Donald Trump's recent press conference. Hey there, John. Hi, Virginia. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm excited to talk to you about this turbulent Trump week. More vertigo from the administration culminating yesterday in Trump's press conference, which, as you point out in your column on NewYorker.com, got a resounding WTF from not just CNN and the failing New York Times, but also from Fox and the New York Post. Yeah, well, I think anybody who watched that press conference, it was pretty astonishing, right? I mean, even, as you say, the conservative press, um, I think, you know, generally supported of Trump, just the sight of him being out there for an hour and a quarter in the East Room of the White House, which is usually used for the sort of most august occasion, and him basically just ranting for an hour and a quarter at the media was, you know, even shocking to people who support him, I think. It sounds like it. I mean, you said that uh, that Shep Smith at Fox News called it a press conference for the ages. And on Fox Business Channel, it got called, what, insane? Yeah, well, one of their commentators called it insane. And uh, the New York Post called it a marathon rant against the press. Wow. So I don't think there's, a, there's any doubt about that. I mean, the interesting thing, as always with Trump, is um, how it's taken by the country at large. That's the sort of mainstream right-wing press we're talking about there, Fox and the New York Post. If you go further right into sort of old Trump land, it was actually hailed as a, you know, as a big success. Rush Limbaugh said he thought it was the best press conference he'd seen in years. And um, if you look on sort of, you know, the right-wing websites, they really liked it because he's seen as attacking the press and reasserting his right to um, declare his own narrative. Yeah, I mean, there is this tendency now for... I don't know, a a conversation about is black, black and white, white. And, you know, the worse it does in the eyes of the center right and the mainstream media, the better it seems to do with the, um, do people still say wingnuts with the Limbaugh types? Yeah, I mean, with it, I, call, I call it Trumpland. I mean, I think in Trumpland, people have basically just bought into this idea that, you know, news is fake news. Anything negative about Trump is fake news. And, uh, you know, if you go onto these right-wing sites or listen to talk radios, I try to do. I think one of the problems we have in the liberal media is people just don't spend enough time, you know, listening to the right-wingers and the Trump supporters. If you, you know, if you listen to Rush Limbaugh, uh, as I do quite often, or Sean Herrity on his radio program and the people who call in, or look at the right-wing websites and the comment sections, you know, you, you get a lot of people saying it's all Hillary's fault. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to lock, lock Hillary up, she's behind all this. You're like, what's that got to do with anything? It's a sort of double conflation. And it does sound like she's still addling him and, as you say, Trump land from beyond the electoral loss. So blowing past the, or for briefly, briefly tabling the idea that it was a chaotic mendacious press conference. What do you think won it praise from figures like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity? I mean, what was interesting, just in stagecraft or showmanship or rhetorical deflection or propaganda, was any of it, to your mind, effective? Well, I think it was effective with his supporters. I mean, Trump... I think gets underrated in the center and on the left as just a, a stage performer and as a sort of television star. He knows a lot about, you know, what images work well on TV and how he comes across on TV. And I, I think this basically was going back to the campaign trail here and saying, reasserting the sort of... Um, the, his right to sort of define reality as, as he sees it, as he does on the campaign trail every day, 
and to sort of rile up the base. I mean, it, it actually makes some strategic sense. It, it makes it makes sense as a performance because his his supporters react well to that. But it also makes sense if you think of it uh, strategically, as I'm sure Bannon people in the White House were doing. What they've got here is a potential deflection of moderate or just mainstream conservative GOPers. The only people who can really harm Trump at the moment are the senators and the Republican senators and congressmen. And what you saw on what you've seen over the last week or so is some of those guys going wobbly on the Russian. The GOP don't like this Russian story. Average Republicans, I don't think, react well to it because, you know, most Americans were brought up to see Russia as the enemy. So this is a bad story for Trump and a bad story for the GOP. And that's why you've seen some of the GOPers breaking with it. Even Mitch McConnell this morning gave a very ambiguous state, uh, answer to when he was asked whether he believes Trump on this. So if you're in the White House, that's a very alarming trend. You have to do something to stop it. So their way of stopping it is to go back on the fake news, get Trump out there as, as a sort of uh, as a performer again, riling up the base, attack the media, and get the sort of bit the right wing base of the Republican Party to put some pressure on the people in Congress to back him. That's why they're having a rally tomorrow on Saturday in Florida as well. I think you know strategically, it's a way of putting some pressure on the on the Republicans in Congress to line up behind him. It's certainly probably better for the administration that today we're talking again about is Trump crazy and less about what was exactly that collaboration with the Russians like. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were the reports in the White House that, uh, you know, his staff were giving him high fives after the press conference. The mainstream media were saying, look, this guy's gone crazy. It must do him terrible harm. But I, I think they knew what they were doing. I mean, I wrote it myself several times during the campaign. It appeared that Trump had gone crazy. I mean, I think I wrote a column which was headlined something like, now he's really lost it or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, he, and he had really lost it, but it, it works with his base. The question is, of course, I think they need to do that in the short term because they've had such a terrible week or two. But in the long term, can you be a successful president with sort of 35, 40 percent support? I think that's the uh, that's the larger question. Um, What do you think that at a press conference like this, what what might be a different way for reporters in the room to respond when Trump goes to this particular setting? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think the guy from uh, NBC News, you know, was pretty effective when he just stood up and read back to him his statement about the Electoral College and pointed out how he'd basically just been putting out there outrageous falsehoods that he had the biggest electoral victory since um, since Reagan when George H.W. Bush and Obama both beat him comfortably. But even that, I don't know if it had much imp- it, it was a good moment, and I think most reasonable people would say that just shows he, you know, what a how he's completely lost touch with reality. But did it damage him with his core supporters? I, I don't know. There's only so much reporters can do in a press conference, I think. I mean, there's a more radical option, you know, that maybe they shouldn't even bother going to these press conferences if he's not giving out, if all it is is sort of stagecraft and a chance to harangue the press. But that's never going to happen because the cable networks get such high ratings for him. You know, you say one thing that really stood out in this um, in today's column, I mean, sorry, yesterday's column in the in the New Yorker. um, One of the things you say in here is that in a more fractious political environment, it's hard to imagine one. But then you point out that the British Parliament is such a venue for a totally different kind of exchange between leaders and uh, statesmen and that in British Parliament, Trump might have been shouted down by howls of derision. And instead, our our media is so polite. 
No, I mean, I think that's, you know, the, because the presidency is sort of, you know, an office of state as well, we've got this tradition that the president, even a president like Trump, is afforded some respect. I mean, if he had been in parliament and he'd started to just come out with outright forces like that, there would have just been shouts and he'd have been howled down and the Speaker of the House would have had to calm everything down. But any American president is always given this great deference that they don't, they never confronted anywhere. It's not a parliamentary system, so they don't have to defend themselves in front of their peers. The only uh, sort of time they do have to defend themselves is in interviews, which they collect, select carefully, or in uh, press conferences. And Trump is now sort of organizing these press conferences so that a lot of the time he doesn't even take questions from, from the mainstream press. So I think that does raise questions, uh, you know, for the media, how they're going to react to that. You don't want to just be a pawn in, um, you know, in the White House's sort of media strategy. But it's a tough one. I mean, Reagan, of course, you know, these things go back a long way. Reagan, of course, did but held virtually in no press conferences and just Michael Devey used to just lay on a nice piece of um, sort of soundbite every day or even a picture every day and that was all you saw of Reagan. Trump is more accessible than that so far but it's not it's not an orthodox press conference in the way of you know they're unveiling things and um, giving out information. I mean Trump at the press conference yesterday was nominally to unveil the new nominee for Labour secretary. He spoke about that for about thirty seconds and then <laughs> berated the media for an hour and a quarter. So you know this is a, it's a different world as Paul as Paul Ryan says. Trump's a new type of president. And I think everybody has to um, reassess um, their roles in that. In that. What uh, what. Can you ima- can you imagine though people you said that you liked one of the questions the question that confronted Trump on his errors and lies around his electoral victory can you imagine another way of confronting him or do you think that just going on strike and not going to these press conferences is the best move Well it's a tough I, I think if he, if he has these press conferences where he doesn't ask anybody from the mainstream press any questions, which he seems to do when he has just foreign leaders and they have these short press conferences. I really don't see any point for the networks to be there if they're just going to be ignored. I mean, it's just a way for them to sort of him to ritually humiliate them. They could still show the footage, but I don't know why they have to have their guys there as uh, props. On a sort of more um, longer stage press conference like this, that he had yesterday. I think, you know, there's a good argument for being there. He did actually ask questions of um, the main networks and the main papers, etc. You have to be realistic. I don't think a press conference is going to bring down Donald Trump. The real role of journalism is to get beyond press conferences and, you know, do investigative work, dig stuff up. The reason he's in trouble now is because of the stories about Russia and the stories about Flynn. That's the real journalism, you know, which is having an impact on on how the presidency is evolving. Press conferences are a theatre, so I don't think we can expect too much from them. Um, Let's go to Russia a little bit. Um, Trump said Russia is fake news. Russia itself is fake news. Well, they do have um, a lot of fake news over there. He was right there. <laughs> what, do, what do you think he, he meant by that? And also, what do you think the state of the Russia reporting is right now? Well, I think, you know, it's a sign that the White House takes this story very seriously. As I said a bit earlier, the Russia story, I think, is the one story which could really do him serious damage with the Republicans on Capitol Hill. And the White House clearly doesn't want to have a proper investigation into Trump's ties to Russia. They need to tamp down this story you know, as much as they can. And from Trump's perspective, the way to do that is to just you know, use this fake news narrative that, A, it takes attention from it on a daily basis like this, because now we're all talking about Trump's media strategy and fake news rather than uh, what was Paul Manafort talking to the Russians about. 
And B, it also sets up for the future if there's even more damaging stories um, involving Trump himself or what was actually said to the Russians or actual collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign, which hasn't been proved so far. Then Trump has already set it up to say it's just more fake news. I, I think, you know, there's a sort of short-term strategy here for them and a long-term strategy. The question is, you know, does it work? Uh, who, who really believes it's fake news? And I think maybe 30, 35% of the country does, but um, I don't think that story is going to work with the sort of senior senators on Capitol Hill. And as you say, they are the, they're the crucial players. How they interpret the Russia story could have actual consequences for the administration. Yes, I mean, you know, I think that's the most sort of significant thing we've seen this week is uh, in terms of, you know, the sort of long-term prospects of the administration, I think, is um, at least some Republicans saying they're open to a, a serious investigation of Trump's Russian links. Now, they said that before Christmas when these stories first came out about um, the intelligence agencies saying Russia had tried to hack the election. And then when the story when the story fades away from the headlines, they backed off. And the idea of a select committee or a sort of 9-11 style commission went away. It's been resurrected again this week. I think, you know, it's going to be important for the media and for um, the Democrats who are trying to uh, keep the story going to keep it in the headlines so that the whole thing just doesn't fade away again. You say you say and I thought this was interesting that most of these most of the Republicans in the Senate grew up with the idea that Russia was the enemy as recently as Mitt Romney's campaign. They were still considered, if not public enemy number one, public enemy number two or three. Do you think that this is a concern on the part of Congress? Oh, I, I do, yes. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you just listen to what Paul, Paul Ryan is, the sort of one of the pivotal players here, of course. And if you listen to what he's been saying this week, he came out with a very uh, sort of strong statement on Russia. I believe Russia is, you know, an adversary of the U.S. They're trying to do harm to us. We have to be strong on sanctions. I wouldn't support any anything that harms NATO or the alliance. It was basically a traditional statement of uh, Republican and Democratic Atlanticism in which, uh, you know, Russia's the bad guy. But he didn't go beyond that to say, I think there should be a um, investigation of the um, of Trump's links to Russia. In fact, he took the White House line saying the big issue here is the leaks. We need an investigation of whether they're illegal or not. So that that shows you where the Republican leadership's at. One thing I think this has uh, this has done, and I think it's um, Trump mentioned it himself, it's made it harder for the administration to sort of pivot pivot to Putin. I think Trump will still try it because for whatever reason he seems to that seems to be one of the things he really wants to do. But I think the politics of that have, have changed a lot over the last week or two. What do you think about in Trump land, the people who vote for these senators, their constituencies at home? Do you think this is bubbling up at all, not with the far right, but with the rank and file GOP? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. I'd, like, I'd love to see some journalism on that. I don't think we've got enough journalism on that. And, you know, Instead of sending all these people to press conferences, I wish um, some of the news organizations would send some people out to uh, sort of Michigan, Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and the South, and ask them what they actually think about Russia and Putin and, and Trump. I think some of them would just mimic back what uh, you know the, what they're hearing on um, Rush Limbaugh and um, some parts of Fox News, the Hannity Show, etc. That it's all just a um, fake news and uh, Trump hasn't got anything to do with Russia. But I think if you actually press them on whether cozying up to Putin's a good idea, I, I think you'd probably still get quite a lot of negative reaction there. And now that's just my surmise on reporting on America for 30 years. I haven't been out there in the in the heartlands for the last three weeks, you know, asking them what they think now. But I think I don't think. 
cozying up to Putin and, you know, being a, a friend of Russia is a winning, ultimately a winning strategy for Trump. Bannon might think so, but um, I, I think as a, as a very narrow slice of America actually would endorse that policy. Government coming back to this idea of the British Parliament and the American, strange American deference, even in a, a press that's meant to be, you know, give the, our presidents a hard time, we sort of fall silent and continue to say we're giving him a chance and use all the trappings of Mr. President and so forth. Why are some of these figures like Ryan and McConnell, why do they not seem to be thinking toward the future? I mean, there, there will be a time when Trump is out of office. Well, I think, you know, they'll, they'll deal with that, you know, they'll walk over that bridge when it comes to it. I mean, I think, Think of it from their point of view. If you're Paul Ryan, you know, you've been trying to get rid of Obamacare for um, eight years without any success. You've been trying to overhaul the tax system for 15 years without any success. All these Republican conservative policies, you've now got a chance to push through because Trump's in the White House. So unless you think he's going to be overthrown or he's going to go down, you're going to be deferential to him. It's a very cynical, very craven attitude. But um, I think people on Wall Street have, have the very same attitude. If you're Rupert Murdoch, for example, you've got you know issues. His big rival, Time Warner, are just about to merge with AT&T. The Trump administration theoretically has got the power to block that deal. There's all sorts of deals. You know, the chairman of AT&T on the other side of that deal was was in visiting with um, Trump during the inauguration. So there's only so I've actually written a couple of times that I think the business community, for various reasons, might eventually break with Trump because ultimately he is a big threat to them because he's he's sort of anti-globalism is a big threat to them. And um, he ultimately just the sheer specter of chaos is not good for business. But set against that, the president and the power of the presidency to do favors for these guys is just so immense that um, I don't think they're going to break until they really think he's going down. Um, before I let you go, I, one of the things you point out also in the piece is that, and I, I, I really, really like this, you say one of the few things Trump seems to actually like about being the president is that finally some of the rich guys who disparaged him in the past are coming and genuflecting before him. You include in this Paul Singer, one of the conservative billionaires who used to dislike Trump and now uh, now supports him and comes and, and maybe kisses the ring. Yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, I think if you look at Trump, he just doesn't look like he's enjoying himself in the White House, does he? I mean, when he walked on stage yesterday, it looked as if he was having a terrible time. I mean, his face was all contorted. He, he seemed furious at the world. I think he sort of actually loosened up as he sort of tore into the press for an hour or so, and he seemed to be quite enjoying himself by the end of it. So <laughs> I, I think he's a sort of... Um, Normal state of mind in the in the White House, it seems, is sort of um, fury that you know he can't just order everything around and be hailed as the great leader. Um, and one of the few things he actually likes, I think, is that Trump was always seen as an outsider on Wall Street. You've got you know if you go back, I, I've covered him for twenty, thirty years on and off as a business guy. He was always seen as a sort of media figure more than a serious Wall Street, more than a serious businessman by um, you know big Wall Street guys, CEOs, etc. So I think the one thing he really like, loves about being president is that people like Singer, Rupert Murdoch, Gary Cohn, the former president of Goldman Sachs, who he's got working for him at the NEC, all a lot of big hedge fund managers, a lot of big figures on Wall Street who 20 years ago would not would have ignored him, or even five years ago would have ignored him, two years ago would have ignored him, are now coming down and sort of genuflecting to him at the White House. I think from, or, or down at Mar-a-Lago or wherever, I think, you know, if you're Trump, that's the upside of the job. Now the boot's on the other foot, and I think he's thoroughly enjoying that.
Thank you very, very much, John. It's been great to have you. Thanks very much for inviting me on. It was fun. We'll talk again. Yep. That's it for today's show. Jason DeLeon produces Trumpcast, and he's the least communist person you'll ever meet in your entire life. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's the least ageist person you'll ever meet in your entire life. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer at Panoply. He is the least gluten-free person you'll ever meet in your entire life. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump, and he is the least anti-bald person you'll ever meet in your entire life. Jacob Weisberg created this show. He's actually the least paleo person you'll ever meet in your entire life. And I'm Virginia Heffernan, the most pro-superlative person you'll ever meet in your entire life. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Reporters, please, no more hard questions. I like nice questions. Nice questions get nice answers. Stupid questions get mean answers. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? If you want to keep coming to the White House, nice questions. Nice questions. Thank you. On the January 30th edition of Trumpcast, Jacob Weisberg had a back and forth conversation with Bill Browder, the investor and author, about how the Trump administration may affect the United States relationship with Russia. As part of that conversation, they discussed work done by the firm Fusion GPS and its co-founder, Glenn Simpson, on behalf of the company Prevazon, owned by the son of the vice president of Russian Railways. By that discussion, Trumpcast and Slate did not intend to imply that Fusion GPS or Mr. Simpson were directly working for the Russian government or Russian intelligence. Fusion GPS and Mr. Simpson state that they have never engaged in any lobbying on behalf of Russia or Russian agents, and they assert that their only work for a Russian entity was in the Prevazon litigation at the request of the law firm Baker Hostetler. Because Fusion GPS and Mr. Simpson do not believe they were engaged in lobbying activity, they contend that they were not required to file under the Foreign Agents Registration Act.